The following is a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. Before there was radio, TV, or podcasts, people gathered together to tell stories. And these stories were meant to entertain or educate. It really drew people in and helped them forget their troubles of the day and experience something they've never imagined before or maybe illustrated something in a way that was more easily to mentally digest. This tradition has been reborn in the forms of not only RPGs and LARPs, but in console, card, and board games as ways to tell a story and bring you into the tale. We're going to be talking about news, kickstarters of games you should be aware of, and interview a guest about a topic that involves some aspect of storytelling. We welcome you to the Adventure Party. Hello, and welcome to the 22nd gathering of the Adventure Party on this, the 23rd of August. Uh, I'm your party leader, Brad Ludwig. We ask that you peace tie your swords, holster your blasters, and make sure your tokens are properly flipped over when you are gathered at the meeting table. Uh, we're taking a break from our convention theme that we've uh, kind of been following this whole month uh, to speak with Matthew McFarland of uh, Growling, uh, Growling Door Games. Boy, I almost flubbed the name. That would have been really embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Matthew's had a lot of experience in, in the world of RPG, and uh, he has uh, picked up the license for the horror game uh, uh, Chill. And to me, Chill... Boy, when I when I first started gaming, it was fantasy based. It was D and D. It was Iron Crown Enterprises, Rollmaster, or their Space Master. And it wasn't until really White Wolf and Chill that it opened my eyes that it could be something more. That it could be could be a horror based game. It could be contemporary. It could be basically uh, urban fantasy. And it it's one of those games that. Unfortunately, I only got to play Chill once in the 90s, but I was really excited when I saw that uh, you had gotten the license and that you were putting it on Kickstarter and you were you were bringing it back. And that was really exciting to me. And, and I saw that, I got on board with it, and I really wanted to get you on the show and talk to you about what that took, um, you know, taking something that had been in existence before and had, had you know, Mayfair phased it out. And yeah. you brought it back and what kind of journey a person takes to, to, to pick up the pre-existing license of uh, a game that has some history because by the time Mayfair had it, they were second edition. And now you are going to bring out a third edition and update it and put uh, a, a new spin on it, but still keep some of the old themes and, and some of the core things intact and, and make something something newer and something slightly different, but still is the same old chill. And that was really fascinating. So we really wanted to have you on the show. So uh, thank you very much for joining us, Matthew McFarlane. Thanks for having me. Um, unfortunately, uh, my second in command, Glenn Bittner, is not here. Um, I'm not sure where he's at right now, but we're going to just kind of continue on. We're going to shorten things up a little bit here, and we're going to go right into right into the news and talk about something that's very interesting. Uh, Paizo who, uh, you know, they're Pathfinder. Uh, to me, they're mostly Pathfinder, but, you know, they have some other properties as well. Uh, voting is happening now for the opening round of Paizo's RPG Superstar Season 9. 
and this story comes to us from Tabletop Gaming News. Uh, Paizo is looking for the next RPG superstar, and they need your help to find them. Voting has begun on the ninth season of the RPG Superstar search over at the Paizo website. Uh, contributors from all over the world are vying to be the, vet, the best. They've made their submissions, and now you get to vote on which you think uh, should who you think should move on to the next round. This first round had creators making a magic weapon, magic armor, and wondrous items. And we'll have a link in the show notes uh, where you can check out voting and and get some more details on this. I taking a, a reality sort of approach to RPG. I could see how maybe it would be a way to. Who do you think that they, I'm going to ask you this, Matthew? Who do you think that they are really pitching to here the the person who maybe has never game before but has is interested in reality type programming or what are your thoughts so i just um i wasn't actually familiar with this until you started talking about it and then i kind of quickly googled it um so <laughs> i don't i don't play dnd i don't play a lot of pathfinder so okay that don't, don't it's not really not really something I pay attention to. Um, it was funny you were talking about uh, starting with fantasy and then moving into horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started with superhero games and then moved into horror. Okay. Um, kind of, <laughs> kind of fantasy entirely. Um, sure. So um, you know, D and D is most people's first game, but you know, I've just kind of played it off and on, but I've never really gotten into it. But I'm looking at the uh, the rules now for the for the RPG superstar, and it looks like what you're doing is. Is it uh, finalists gain opportunity for a paid commission to write a 16-page adventure? So it almost looks like they're looking for writers. Okay. And if that's what they're doing, and I want to, I want to say really kind of emphatically, if that's what they're doing, because you know, I, I certainly haven't had a chance to really read through this. Um, you know, the contest method of of looking for talent is not my favorite thing in the world. Because to me, it's it's a job. It should be a job. Um, okay. You know, I I'm, I'm a big fan of companies trying to you know treat their treat their writers professionally, and there's this this industry unfortunately because of the the profit margins that we work on, which are really slim. Um, you know, writers don't get paid much. Art, artists don't get paid much, and so I think that overall it's improving. But if some of some of the companies out there still use very um i hesitate to use the word exploitative because that's harsh but you know if the shoe fits uh (laughs) methods of of paying and, and dealing with their creatives and i have seen contest models that leave writers really sort of high and dry with very little to show for their work and um with nothing in the way of rights to what they sent in. Now, I don't know if that's the case here. Like I said, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to look over it, but um, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about submitting to, you know, any kind of contest model, um, that's, that's something to be, to be, you know, aware of, just make sure you read the fine print and understand what you're giving them when you give them your submission. Sure. Sure. Um, Yeah. It really, you know, looking at the FAQ, it is very much about uh, writing a campaign. And they're in the uh, FAQ. It looks like it's all about um, a lot of the questions are, you know, if I'm going to do this, what can I and can I not use in creating a campaign? So, yeah, you you hit the nail on the head there. That is that is what it's all about. Um, 
yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can see where you'd want to try to, you know, foster or, or try to find new talent out there. Um, because I'm so, going to make an I'm going to make a, a general assumption that it's not easy to become a a writer for in the gaming industry, and and you would most certainly know better than others. Um, um so like Onyx Path Publishing, which of course sure. they do the World of Darkness now. Yep. Um, they we have um, I don't I don't work for them full time, but I do a lot of freelancing for them, both as a writer and as a developer. And um, we have submission guidelines up on the on the site. And so, you know, when you submit to Onyx Path, you send in your submission, but you also send in um, a submission non-disclosure agreement, basically saying that we're going to look at what you submit. We're not promising to publish it. We're not going to pay you for it. We're just going to take it as a submission. And we're also not going to, you know, take it from you and publish it without attribution or without compensation. Um, that's one way to do it. Um, I haven't run a an all call or a, a writer's submission uh, for Growling Door yet because I haven't needed to. Um, sure. You know, the we're we've only published what four books now, um, and the only one that we've really hired a lot of freelancers for was Chill, and I recruited very heavily from people that I knew uh, from Onyx Path because you know I one of the nice things about you know being developer for them is that I have you know, lots of really talented people that I can poach when I need to <laughs> sure so, um, but it, you know if if the day comes that we you know need to recruit more more writing talent that's pretty much how we're gonna do it we're gonna you know say you know give us a submission this is not a promise of work this is just an audition effectively sure. um, and kind of go from there, but I think I think that if you're holding a contest to find creatives, you're sending the wrong message because the message that you're sending is come work for us. It's a privilege. You won something by working for us. And what you should be saying is show us how awesome you are so that we can give you a job and give you money to do this work for us. No, absolutely, I would agree with that 100. percent I. Because you really want, you definitely want the best of the best, and you also want, I would guess, especially if you're pulling people from from Onyx Path, um, and the work that they've been doing there. I really enjoy the update to uh, Hunters Hunted. I, I really enjoyed that. I worked on um, that. What's that? I said I wrote for that. It's matter. Oh, <laughs> excellent. I am. I'm, I'm a huge fan of that setting, uh, playing a human in in the vampire and in, in the monster world, and. Um, and that's very much a theme in Chill, which we'll, we'll definitely get to. So and that's one of the things that I, I think that Chill opened up my eyes as to that being a possibility for Vampire. And then they came out with The Hunters Hunted, and that just that blew me away. So, uh, Sorry, I digressed there a little bit. Uh, yeah, you definitely want to get the, the best of the best, and, and you have that capability, especially with you owning your own company and, and working for Onyx Path, you've, you, you know that there are tried and true people that are out there that, uh, that you've worked with and, and you appreciate their work and, and they're willing to, 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 to come on board and, and, and add stuff to, to, to your world, which is really cool. And um, yeah, an open cattle call like that might work for, for Idle, but I'm <laughs> not sure that it would be the best, uh, best thing for... For an RPG, uh, Glenn, what are 
what are your thoughts? I just saw that you you snuck in on here. Uh, Glenn Glenn Bittner is is back with us here. So, hi Glenn. Oh, sorry I'm late. <laughs> no worries. Um, so we're we're talking about Paizo doing an open call for um, uh, basically a, an American Idol, their RPG superstar, their their ninth season of it, and um, you know they're they're looking to have people come up with ideas and see what they have, and um, they could possibly work for for Paizo. Sounds nifty. <laughs> now, now, Glenn, you also have the experience of creating Mist Runner, the uh, the RPG Mist Runner. Um, would you? We've gotten Matthew's perspective of of that. Would you do something like that for for Mist Runner to come up with you know different source books or other materials for Mist Runner? If I had a following of people who uh, would be interested, sure, I I could, I could see doing something like that. Okay. I think it's it's a, it's a nifty little idea, um, and I I think it probably gets some people who would have never thought to contribute something to contribute something because you might find someone who just needs that that little push, you know. That and this might be the a push that they'd be comfortable taking as opposed to just doing like a blind type of submission type thing. Okay. Yeah. I I guess I could I could see that perspective. Do you do you think I'm kind of wondering though? Do you want somebody who's bold and fearless and willing to just you know submit something and say, hey, you know, I really like your stuff. I would like to be a part of this. Here's something that I have that please look at and let me know if I could work for you. And there's definitely something to be said for having that level of of confidence as opposed to sneaking in through the back door, which is what this kind of kind of feels like a little. Well, I mean, yeah, you want people like that, but. You also have to understand the 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 pool that you're drawing from is a very introverted pool. So I I think knowing that there there are a lot of people out there who you know they just well for for a variety of reasons just haven't made a submission or just aren't comfortable doing it. But uh, you never know. I mean, you might find someone who who you know works out. You might not. I mean, it's. There's not a ton of, I mean, this is not like costing them like millions of dollars to do, so, nope. and they're gonna get to see lots of cool things that come out of it. Sure. Okay. All right. Both are, are very valid points of views, and um, I kind of I'd like to keep an eye on this to see what comes of this and how. I would really like to see how winners from seasons one through eight have fared and what they've actually produced for Paizo and, and how well it was received just to see. There's one thing to do something like this to build buzz because it's, it's really about marketing. I mean, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you're, you're doing a contest to get a bunch of people in to, to try something and, and see your product and whatever, but it, I don't know. It, there's good and bad here, and it'd be interesting to see how the previous winners have have fared. So I'd be I'd be interested in that too. Yeah, actually, one of the one of the problems that you run into with hiring uh, writers in RPGs is that the people who submit tend to be fans, and that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But the problem is that if you submit as a fan 
and your primary motivation for doing the work is, I really love this world and I want to be part of it, then there, there does come the danger of when you get your first set of red lines back and you know someone, some developer or some editor has taken what you've written and torn it to shreds because that's part of the process. Yeah. You know, going, I can't do this. I didn't, you know, I didn't know it was going to be work. And I've, I've lost writers um, over the years because, I mean, no one has ever actually come out and said, you know, I thought I didn't think this was going to be work, obviously. But I've, I've certainly run across writers who are perhaps better suited to do fan work and are not, for whatever reason, can't quite get their minds around how writing something for publication differs from writing it for fun. Okay. You know what I mean? So is, do you have in your experience then, was it the whole editing process? Was it the whole meeting the deadline of getting those red lines back and going, it's, okay, yes. I need to rework this and then hand it back in? It's it, it's I have seen I have seen a number of different kind of unpleasant realities of the profession or of the of the job trip people up. One of them is writing to, to deadlines. Um, you know some some people can sit down and take an outline and crank out a thousand words a day and hit their deadlines, and some people just whack their heads against the keyboard and just can't you know can't summon it when they need to. And some of that comes with practice. I mean you know writing is is something that you get better at the more you do it. So I always tell, you know, writers and you know, I mean everybody that I've <laughs> that does this professionally will pretty much say the same thing. If you want to be a writer, write. Yeah. Do it do okay. it every day, but if you can't do much, you know, do 500 words a day, do 100 words a day, whatever you can manage. At least you'll you'll stay in in shape as it were. Sure. Um and then as far as writing for for games too, I mean, I've I've worked with people who are really good at um kind of doing setting work and or doing okay. fiction but when you ask them to do mechanics they don't quite have their their head around that oh, part sure yeah i could um, see that and that's more important for some games than others um, and then i've i've met people too that you know don't don't quite realize that if you're going to do this consistently it's basically taking on a second job yeah and I mean, and I, you know, honestly, I've been doing this since you know what, 1997, and you know, this past year just killed me because I was doing three core books at the same time, and you know, yeah, I got done with a couple of months of doing that, and my wife was like, "You are never doing this again." I'm like, "I am never doing this again." Yes, sign that in blood. I am never doing this again. I am not ever taking on this level of this level of work because it it really, I mean. It was too much. It was too much. It was like working because I work a full-time job as well. Sure. Um, and it was like, you know, I I never. And part of the issue was too that like, mu much of my day job involves sitting at a computer, and then I would come home and be like, and eh, now I've got to write, or now I've got to edit, and I'm like, no, I need to get up, and go outside, throw sticks for my dogs, so. Yeah, I. It takes a special type of person, or. A, Maybe not so much. I don't want to make it magical because you're right. It is a job. It is yep. something that you you have to have that level of focus, that level of passion, and that level of professionalism where you are like, okay, I am now putting on this hat and I'm doing this thing from this time to this time, yep. and this is what I do. And it's sometimes it's a grind, and some you know we we talked with uh, fantasy writer uh, Patrick Rothfuss. 
Okay. And he kind of said the same thing that, you know, it's 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 a job, and you need to take it seriously, um, or you're not going to get anywhere. You need to be aware of what what you can do too. Yeah. Um, part of the part of the problem that I had when I um, when I went back to to grad school because I I had been a full time freelancer for, for for a couple of years, and then I went to grad school and I was like, oh, I can still write, you know. 30,000 words a month, no problem. No. no. So I had to had to kind of trim back the writing that I was doing. Same thing after my daughter was born. I'm like, I, you know, I couldn't I couldn't meet the same level of productivity. Sure. And it took a while to kind of readjust to that. So, you know, that's that's another kind of big part of it. Be aware of what you can do how much you can do in a given amount of time and don't overbook yourself. And yeah. I mean that's that unfortunately is the kind of is the kind of lesson that you tend to learn the hard way. Um, but you know, you do have to learn it. Yeah, no, I could see that being a very hard lesson to learn. Uh, especially if you're the kind of person who dreams big and overpromises and underdelivers, which you want to reverse that. You wanna yeah. promise over deliver. And that, yeah, that can be a very rough lesson to learn, and might cost you, cost you some jobs. Um, unfortunately, if you don't, if you don't pick that lesson up quicker, rather than uh, rather than later. So, all right, I, I think we're gonna we're switching things up here now that we've got Glenn back. We're gonna go and we're gonna go back and we're gonna do our game review. And Glenn, you've got a game here called Ashes: Rise of the Phoenix Born. Well, what's this all yes. about? Well, this one's brought to us from uh, brought to us by Plaid Hat Games. Um, they're the lovely folks who also brought us Dead of Winter, and this game is by Isaac Vega, who was one of the main writers on Dead of Winter as well. Um, this game, so it's a two to four players. It's an expandable card game um, where the players take on roles of the different Phoenix born. They're kind of like demigods slash protectors of the world. It's basically, these all around powerful people. Um, so you're the great saviors of civilization. Um, and you're basically just going to be battling against each other because I guess that's what great saviors do is they fight each other. Um, and you're doing that by summoning various creatures to your to your aid and casting spells. So in a way, it's got a bit of a magic gathering feel, um, but it also it you have dice. So it's one of the things I love about this is I get to play with dice and I get to play with cards, which are two of my favorite things. Um, and... First of all, I have to say the art is absolutely gorgeous. It's uh, high quality. It's, it's, what I, it's what I've come to expect from Plat Hat Games. They they do a really good job putting a lot of a lot of work into the components of their games. Um, the way the game plays is so as I said, you take control of a Phoenix board and you have a thirty deck, uh, thirty card deck of spells and units. Plus, you get ten dice. Uh, you have two sets of five that correspond basically your different. It's basically this, these are what you're going to roll each turn to determine what you can do with your spells because you're going to have different symbols on the dice which will basically do different things. Uh, there's one specific one that, so you have the best one on each die type which you can use to do anything you want. And then each step down, you can do a bit less. So like the, the highest one, you can do anything you do at that level plus at the two levels below it where if you have the lowest one, all you can do is those lowest, low, lowest level spells and abilities. Um... So each turn you roll your dice, and then you go back and forth between players uh, taking turns. You have your main action, and you have a side action if you want to do it. Um, a turn ends 
when both players have passed on the turn. Um, you can pass, and if your opponent does something, you can then go again as long as you both haven't passed, the turn keeps going. Um, and you keep playing, basically trying to knock your opponent down to zero life. Um, I've played it a couple times now. The first time I played, I got absolutely owned. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the deck I was playing just did not pair well against the person I was playing against. And that's, playing a lot of minis games, um, that, that's a key thing in miniatures, is that you may have someone that goes really well against someone else and then is really weak against something. And that's kind of the, the way you break it down, where everything is in perfect balance, where, you know, everything is perfectly balanced with every other thing because then nothing really seems special, at least in my opinion, nothing really seems special if, if you know, this these every single one of these Phoenix board, if they were all perfectly evenly matched, one, God, that's going to be a mechanical nightmare to figure out. <laughs> sure. um, to, to balance every single card like that. But also, it's it, it doesn't make anything feel special. Where it's like I'm not really great at something, and there's it's great to know that okay, this person is weak to this, and this game like Magic, even though it's not collectible like Magic, where you're chasing random cards, you can customize your deck. So you don't have to play with with what your base deck is. You can switch cards in and out, and you can you can change things a bit so that way you can change uh, from from your basic. You know, this is this Phoenix board comes with these two decks. Well, I don't want to play with those two. I'm going to play with one of the ones, and then this one over here, too. So I can have tougher creatures if I want, or I can have better spells that let me do different things. Um, but they've just come up with a really cool mechanic in general of, of using the dice in conjunction with the cards, because you don't have, like in Magic, where you have mana, you tap mana to your spells. This one, you have spells that cost nothing to put a spell on the battlefield, if you have what's called a ready spell. These are ones that just sit out there. And then you assign dice to them to do their abilities, which is usually a lot of times summoning in creatures or perhaps uh, the one, one of the ones I played was it let me change the value of my dice. So I basically I would exhaust it. You basically exhaust something so you only use it once per turn. You exhaust it and it lets me change two, fa two face values of my dice, which can be really handy when you roll really poorly. So there's a lot of, a lot of ways you can manipulate the dice as well other than just simply if you roll bad, you roll bad. That kind of sucks in games, and this one gives you yeah. some control over that as well because uh, pretty much of the ones I've played or played against, everyone had some degree of ability to manipulate their dice so that you weren't completely hamstrung by a bad die roll. So. Sure, okay. And uh, for those of you who are checking us out on, on YouTube, if you're listening to the, the audio-only version of this, uh, if you go to... Uh, the Galactic Netcasts uh, YouTube page and look for this episode in the playlist for Adventure Party. You can take a look at some of the uh, images that were flashing through here with the dice, the cards, and some of the, the layout of, of, of how uh, the cards look and gameplay. So it, it, seems, it seems interesting, mm -hmm. uh, but I kind of have some reservations. Um, and if you can alter your your cards and and whatnot, I mean, you could kind of cheat. I mean, if you you know have two decks in the box, <clears throat> if I'm understanding this right, if you if you've got decks in the box, you could have a really good deck for yourself, and then give your opponent or opponents really kind of crappy decks. That's well, seems... sure, but I mean, there, there's a lot of games that you can do that if you if yeah. you're a dick that yeah. doesn't care about you know, <laughs> that only cares about winning and isn't. Even... I mean, you know, I mean, in a role-playing game, if I'm a dungeon master, I can just simply say, 
oh, look, I got another crit hit with the goblin. Now your fighter's dead, and the thief is about to die too. I mean, there's lots of ways you can yeah. cheat in games. So no, I'm not going to hold that against the game because there's an ability to cheat in it. Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> no, true enough. True enough. I, you know, I I think that we've spoken a lot in the past about, you know, we're not the type of gamers that just want to win, um, but there are power gamers out there and alpha gamers that that do, and it's always sad when you come up against them, <laughs> and then you 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 have you don't have fun. And, yeah, that's really and what I mean, this is all about. so I mean, where I said I got owned the first time I played, it was when I learned to play the game. The guy I was playing against, who I played lots of games with, he had never played against or with the Phoenix Born that I, I had used. She was actually still sealed in her plastic wrap. Oh, okay, sure. So, just the fact that the one that the one that he picked just happened to go really, really well against mine, where I just I just wasn't a good match for her. But then you know, and initially it soured me on the game. But then I started looking at some of the other Phoenix board, and I'm like, oh, well, this guy could totally trounce the one you were running because he can summon these gigantic rhinos that will just trample over everything. So sure. there, there's there's definitely balance that they have they have come up in the game where you, where you have uh, different Phoenix board that are just, they pair up really well against other ones, and then they do poorly, you know, less good against others. And it really comes down to there's a lot of strategy you can do because I'm not saying I couldn't have beaten him with the deck I had. It's just that on a just brute force level, I was at a disadvantage. Because in, in this game, you start with, the, so I said, you have a 30-card deck. If you ever, at the start of a turn, you have to draw cards. If at any point you don't, you can't draw cards, you take damage for every card you couldn't draw. And the one he was playing is, her ability was she just kept making you draw cards. Yeah. And, dis, and discarding cards from your deck, which... I didn't have the the muscle in my creatures strong enough to kill him faster than he could kill me with with the decks. If I knowing the game a little bit better, I think I may have had a better chance. But I still think she, that one has a definite advantage for who I was playing. Sure. Um, but then I played it another time, and I played against that same one I'd gone against, and I used the guy with the big rhinos, and I just I wrecked face. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, what are you gonna do? It's like, oh, that's cute. You got your little. Dude, there with his little harp thing—that's great. My rhino's just going to tromp all over you, and you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does what does this game run for suggested retail? Do you? I don't know entirely because so this was at Gen Con. Okay. If you did not buy it at Gen Con, you currently won't get it. Um, oh, okay. I believe it's going to retail for probably about sixty. That's that's pretty typical for most of Plat Hat's bigger games. Okay. Um, and for what you get in the box, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. Um, you get, I mean, you get a ton of dice. You get, I think it's six or eight different Phoenix Born that come with it, each with their own thirty card deck. So. Oh yeah. And that thirty cards that does not include uh, creatures you can summon. Because you have you have some creatures that are in your hand you cast oh, other yeah. ones like the one I was playing she was primarily she had three different creatures she could summon and those are actually separate cards from the thirty that are in your deck. Okay. They're just these these side cards that you basically have and I could summon X number of each one. Um, plus you have limitations on what you can have you have um, and I'm really blanking on the the stats what they're called but you have one 
that basically shows how many creatures you can have in play at any one time. And you have another one that is how many spells you can have in play at one time. Sure. Okay. But then same spells can stack on top of each other so they don't count against your limit. So if your limit is four and you've got four different spells out, you can cast one of those same spells again because it'll stack on top of the ones you have. Okay. Very interesting. So uh, once again, you never uh, recommend anything that you don't like or you wouldn't play again. So uh, Yeah, and as, as soon as this... This is supposed to be coming out this fall. Okay. Um, hopefully... Um, Plaid Hat was actually just acquired by Z-Man Games, who, um, you, you've played Pandemic? Yes, yeah. Z-Man Z makes Pandemic. Now, gotcha. I like the games that Z-Man puts out. However, they have for years had issues with distribution. Oh, so, okay. When they say something is available, it's not always when it's available, and odds are when it did become available, there won't be enough of it. So if this game appeals to you in any way and you can find it, grab it while you can. Yeah, buy it immediately. Z-Man has a habit, and I don't I don't know how much how much control Plat Hat still has. I don't know all the specifics. I mean, Plat Hat may just be still operating completely as Plat Hat, just under the Z-Man banner. Sure. I don't know, but. Snag it up when you can, because there have been... I've gone through Christmas seasons where Pandemic, which is one of our best-selling games at the store, oh, yeah, it's not available. They don't. They didn't print enough, and no one has it anywhere. So, sorry, you can't have the game you want for Christmas. Yeah. I can recommend other ones that aren't dealing with disease. Oh, <laughs> All right, see ya. Thanks. Come back. Buy it online when it's $150, and it's a $40 game. Sorry. Uh, yeah, that's that's always rough. You have to, if you want something really bad, it's not available at your local store, and then you try to get it through eBay or something else. Yeah, you pay through the nose. Absolutely. All right. <clears throat> well, next up, yeah, we have kind of switched the order around, but we're going to get back on track here, and Ryan Murphy is going to be the guy to do it. Uh, he's our regular contributor with the Galactic Gaming News, and he covers more of the digital beat of gaming, and he has another update for us. So take it away, Ryan. Hello everybody and welcome to Galactic Gaming News for the week of August 21st. I'm your host Ryan Murphy. Let's take a look at the headlines from Out of This World. First up, we've got some Nintendo news. Splatoon wants to settle an 80s era rivalry. A Splatfest is a celebration in Splatoon that lasts for 24 hours, usually over a weekend, during which players head into battle and try to rack up turf war wins for their side. On August 29th, Splatoon players will get to choose to fight for the Decepticons or the Autobots. Looks like Nintendo is getting into the sponsored game with Transformers. When can we expect the Pepsi vs. Coke Splatfest? Inquiring minds want to know. Bungie hosts a Twitch reveal of the Taken King. On August 19th, Bungie held a Twitch stream to reveal more details about their upcoming expansion for Destiny, titled The Taken King. Among the mountain of news, there is one piece for folks who may be interested in revisiting Destiny when the expansion launches. If you buy the Taking King, you can automatically level to 25 with a special item called a Spark of Light. This will boost you to the minimum level for the Taken King so you can play with your friends. There are two more streams planned before the launch. What more secrets could the Taken King be hiding? I for one am excited about the Taken King because it seems like Bungie is really trying to fix some core issues that a lot of gamers had with Destiny. Not to say Destiny was a broken game, but it really only applied to a specific 
group of people who really like to grind for loot. I fell off really quick when it didn't offer the storyline that I expected from Bungie. So I'm really hoping they nail that with this one. Finally, your sci-fi game for the week, Turn Up the Volume. That's not the game, it's just... Mike Bithell's follow-up to Thomas Was Alone, Volume, is a top-down stealth game set in a futuristic dystopian England. 1984, anybody? It is a timed exclusive for PlayStation 4 and Vita, with PC and Mac versions following a month later. The game is getting some great reviews, and Thomas Was Alone was a fantastic game. So if you're looking for a cool sci-fi stealth game, check out Volume. 20 bucks on PS4. This has been Galactic Gaming News, a weekly segment for Galactic Netcasts. For everything I do, go to ryanmurphy.ca or follow me on Twitter at rmurphy. If you're interested in more video game goodness, be sure to check out The Gamers In at gamersinpodcast.com. Each week, Joss and Moffat and I run down the games we've been playing, chat industry news, and take questions or comments from listeners like you. This past week, we just did a spoiler cast for Life is Strange Episode 4, and that game is really cool. We've talked about it on this segment before, so hopefully if you've been playing, go check out the Gamers Inn, listen to that spoiler cast. Also talked a bit more about Everybody's Gone to the Rapture and Hearthstone. So, always a good time on the Gamers Inn. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week for more Galactic Gaming News. All right, thanks for that report, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Uh, Next up, we're going to talk about the Kickstarter Spotlight, and we're going to do a recap of last week's game, which was the Lobotomy board game, and you brought that to the table for us, Glenn, so uh, remind us. Lobotomy. Board game where you have to escape from a mental asylum, and there are many monsters, or are they, that stand in your way. Um, It's a one-to-six player cooperative game, uh, cooperative horror, and uh, it just looks so cool. The minis look so cool. I mean, every... I want this just based on the miniatures alone. Yes. And then you start throwing the fact that it looks like a really cool game, too. I'm like, I am so sold on this. Um, they are... Now, they have seven days left to go. Yep. They were trying to get $40,000. Now, I don't know if they're <laughs> going to hit it being only $235,000 with 1,700 yeah. backers. So they've definitely hit their goal. They've unlocked some more uh, stretch goals since we talked last week. Because now you get, uh, cool, you get a new character comes in the wheel, an old woman in the wheelchair. They um, unlocked the Dale Walker, which is basically Blade. Yep. And that was the cool thing, is that all the characters, if you look at the names, and you can figure out where they got their inspiration from. Yep. So, it's just a really cool game, and it's, it's the type of game I like. I like games where I have, the, the more things I can have, I can have cards, and cards, and dice, and minis in a game, I am in heaven as long as there's not too many dice. <laughs> uh, just such an amazing... Yeah, like you said, the the miniatures for this are just ridiculously detailed and are absolutely gorgeous. And if... Wait, 235... They've got... Oh, they've got a new scenario which has a... Which has a miniature for HP Lovecraft. <laughs> so they must have hit it over the weekend and, and they weren't watching it. So, uh, boy, if you're an HP Lovecraft fan and you've always wanted an HP Lovecraft miniature, this is a game for you. <laughs> yep. Uh, a lot of, I mean, they have an expansion here, which is uh, 
from the deep, which is the deep ones. Um, it, it definitely uh, Cthulhu based. Um, like you said, there's so many different touchstones. There's uh, Sucker Punch. There's a character from from the movie Sucker Punch. There's a character from uh, well Jack Nicholas's character from The Shining is in yeah. there, and uh, it just every horror. Every memorable horror type character that you can imagine shows up in some fashion in this game. Damien from The Omen, um, and on and on. Just uh, Ripley from Alien Three. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it, if you are a fan of, of all the different subtypes of of horror and you like board games, yeah. Right now, the pledge, the base pledge to get on board because the early bird eighty five dollars. <laughs> Versions are gone, but ninety dollars. But what you're getting for that ninety dollars is ridiculous. I mean, yeah, I mean, and that that's that is a normal price for a game this size. Yeah, you look, you look at the, the cool minis. You know, the Zombicide games. Most of those are ninety, a hundred dollars, where you get lots of cool minis and you get the tiles. It's very typical for this type of game now. Is you're going to be spending ninety, a hundred dollars. And I mean, ten years ago, people would have been like, "Oh my God, a hundred dollars for a board game!" But it's you know, now, now, fifty and sixty is the norm. Where ninety is really not outside the realm of what you pay for a good game. And if you are a backer, you're going to be waiting a year. It's not going to to deliver until August of 2016. So you're going to sit for a little bit, um, but it will ship anywhere in the world. Um, that's just mind-numbingly detailed. Uh, and you know. Thinking about it, two hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars that they've reached for a game that's eighty-five to ninety dollars a shot. I mean, that's that's fantastic. You, your initial thought is, boy, that's just too much for a game. But there's <laughs> there are hundreds of people literally who are definitely uh, not not worried about the price tag on that. And quite honestly, with all the images that they have for for the prototypes for uh, the different miniatures and and the gameplay that they show you and stuff like that. And it's 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 amazing. All right. Well, we're done uh, talking about the lobotomy board game. Now we're going to talk about another horror genre game. And this is an RPG called Infected Zombie RPG from Immersion Studios. Um... <laughs> They set their bar, their bar at a lower level. Their pledge level that they want to hit is eight thousand eight hundred and forty-eight dollars. That's their goal, and right now they're at seven thousand one hundred and eighty-eight. And there's twenty-six days left to go, so they're definitely going to hit it. Um, this is kind of an interesting concept, though. It's what happens to the world after a zombie virus outbreak happens. So. The war is over, and there might be some zombies here and there that you might run into, and you kind of have to worry about possible re-outbreaks from them. But you're left with a choice. Do you tear down what's left of, of society and humanity after fighting this this horrible war, or do you actively work to rebuild the world and and make it better and bring it back to where it once was? You know, are are you the anarchist or are you the person that wants to go back to having the normal life you once had before? Which is, I think, kind of an interesting take on on that concept. Um, 
The uh, base level, <clears throat> excuse me, to get on board is uh, $25, and that gets you the RPG PDF and access to all the add-ons and backer-only updates and your name in the back of the book as a backer. And since it's a PDF, I mean, that's a quick pop them in there. That's really kind of cool. Uh, the higher up you go, um, one of the top levels well, that you have... Uh, Brad, I think these are... I think this is Canadian dollars. Because if you look underneath, it shows what the U.S. dollar oh, amount is. Oh, yeah. If you mouse, okay, if you mouse over the dollar icon off to the side. Okay. So they're looking for... Converted from... It's Australia, okay. Australian, Australian, Australian yeah. dollars. That's what it is. So about eighteen dollars U.S. is what you need to get in. Okay, gotcha. PDF. Interesting. Okay. Oh, there. If I looked at the gray printing underneath it instead of yeah. Okay, you caught me. So it's even even cheaper than what we said. So eighteen dollars gets you on the base. Uh, Forty-eight dollars gets you the soldier level, which uh, gets you a PDF and a hard copy of the book and access all the add-ons, the updates. Uh, the estimated delivery for that is uh, February of 2016. Actually, for all of this stuff here is February 2016, it looks like. Um, God, the, the cover for this is just fantastic. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, the old Mayfair chill, kind of that yeah. feel. I was just thinking that. It's a nice, <laughs> nice simple, kind of sexy cover. Yeah. Um, I've got this up on, on the YouTube video version of this, and it's you know very simplistic, but it conveys definitely... When you look at this cover, you know what you're getting into. It is definitely horror genre. Um, it is definitely going be, gonna to be a heavy topic. And you know when you're talking post basically post-World War against the undead, I mean, that's that's... That's a really heavy form of urban fantasy. Um, flipping through this uh, Kickstarter page, and we'll have the link in the show notes uh, to this particular uh, Kickstarter uh, project here. You can see some of the uh, the character sheets, some of the rule summary sheets, and some of the art that they have in the book. And it is absolutely gorgeous. And then they have some videos on gameplay which I think is is really important to uh, games that especially are aren't established and are just coming out to kind of give give people a good sense of what type of dice are used and how typical gameplay would would run just to make sure that that's something that if you're going to put your money down that's going to be a game that you're going to play later on and not feel like you wasted your money because it's not the type of mechanic that you're happy with or or you enjoy. So, very, very interesting. Uh, we had a discussion early on, Matthew, um, in some of our earlier episodes where we talked about Kickstarter maybe helping to create like a new renaissance of gaming. And I wanted to kind of get your perspective uh, on that. Do you feel that that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Kickstarter has it's been not just in gaming either I mean it's it's let um, people who don't have the resources of um, you know a larger publishing company to 
kind of create their game and, and realize their dream and get it out there. And Kickstarter combined with print-on-demand services like uh, DriveThruRPG sure. have, have kind of cemented that. Now, that's, you know, both good and bad. Um, I mean, without, without meaning to be mean about it, not every dream needs to be realized. But, uh, but one of the other nice things about Kickstarter, though, is that it, it can give you a sense of or a gauge of whether or not you, you know, should continue with a given project um, or whether, you know, the world just isn't ready for it. Okay. Um, or, you know, whether you've thought it through enough. I've, you know, we've run four Kickstarters. Three of them were successful. One of them wasn't. And, you know, the one that wasn't, we kind of went well. You know, some of that was the way that it was presented. Some of it was because our, our ask was too high. Um, and we kind of, you know, took it back to drawing board and, and shelved it, basically. And we're like, well, well, we'll get to this when we when we figure out a way to make it work. But, okay. But, um, but, yeah, there are definitely a lot of games, some of which are on my bookshelf right now, that are would not really have been possible uh, pre-Kickstarter, you know, unless the, the creators were able to get somebody with an existing infrastructure interested. And if you're publishing through someone else, then, you know, hopefully they're going to let you, you know, realize your game the way that you want to, but... And, you know, the producer always seems to want to have some creative input too. Sure. That's not always that's not always what you want as a creator. Yeah. So it's nice to it's nice to be able to be your own boss. There are pitfalls with that too. You know. Yeah, but, I could see, especially with perhaps distribution or um, or just general communication, if you don't have or if you don't have a good concept of what that infrastructure should look like and should be like, and if you have the right people kind of manning those posts. Yeah. It kind of depends on what you want to do. I mean, if all you want to do is make your game, sell the PDF, sell it print-on-demand, you can do that. You don't have to muck about with distribution, or if you want to, um, you know, a lot of times you can go through, like, Indie Press Revolution. Um and then they'll, you know, they'll take your stuff to uh, to cons, or they'll, you know, they'll distribute it for you. Um, you're never going to make bank, uh, but you, if you wanted to make bank, you shouldn't be in RPGs anyway, really. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. What's the, what's the what's the best way to make a million bucks in the RPGs? Start with two million. <laughs> yeah, I could, I can see that, and uh, for so much joy that RPGs bring. I mean, you get the right combination of a good system and a good storyteller, and it's magical. And um, yep. You know. And really, I mean, if you think about, you know, what it would cost to, you know, take five people to the movies once a week for a year versus what it would cost to run an RPG for five people once a week for a year, you know, economically, it's a clear, you know, clear indication you go with the RPG. But uh, you know, so it's it's you know even if you're even if you're buying something with a with a more expensive book or set of books, it's still really you know a cost-effective hobby, if you will. Sure. Um, if you can, you know, resist buying dice every chance you get, <laughs> which, which some of my players have trouble with. But yeah, I've I've been fortunate that I've only bought four sets, and I think that's only been four because the particular container that I have them in can only really hold for <laughs> it's a weird addiction that uh, I I have a friend uh, he was uh, well Rob Benton who was on our second episode um, he has 
he's got a huge wooden box. It's a treasure chest, I'm not going to lie. And it's probably about, I want to say it's a, just under, about, about 10 inches tall, but it's like, it's a, it's a deep and wide chest. And what he would do is he would have friends go to Gen Con and go to the Chessex yep. table and get the, the, the coffee dice. cup full of dice. Yeah. I just did that for one of my players this year, actually. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's a grab bag of what you get. I mean, it could be, you know, you could get a whole bunch of D6s with pips on them. It could be, you know, it's just a random grab bag. Or you could get dice that when you roll them, it'll tell you what day of the week it might be. If you're trying to, you know, <laughs> you know somebody asks you, oh, what day is it? Then you just grab this specialized die to roll it and tell your players what day of the week it is. It's just a random weird grab bag. So he's got this treasure chest full of random dice of all sorts. And um, he's he's glad he's broken the addiction slightly. <laughs> he hasn't really added to the treasure chest uh, in a while, but um, for for a while there we wanted to, to intervene and say just no, you have way too many dice and that's you know that's not an uncommon thing for players. Yeah. Well, for me, it's just buying the RPGs. I, I came to terms a few years ago with the fact that I'm I'm a collector. I'm always going to be a collector. So I have, you know, bookshelves full of of RPGs that I'm probably never going to play. But I do I do attempt to at least read. Yeah, I, I have a friend who's the same way. He loves RPGs. He loves looking at the process of what the creator has put together and then the mechanic and then kind of figuring out how the mechanic works and, you know, just getting that feel of a game, but he doesn't have the time to run them, so it's always kind of a, well, you know, if I get time sort of a thing. <laughs> and he's literally... For those of you who are watching the YouTube version of this, if you're... When Matthew speaks, you can see behind him he's got these these very nice-looking uh, shelves <laughs> behind him, and he's graciously moved out of the way. And they are filled with a multitude of, of multicolored books and I oh, that, that's that's gorgeous <laughs> looks that like he's got mostly, a that one's mostly World of Darkness yeah I was going to say show. it looked like that That's and then this one I think the top is Savage Worlds and then kind of we get into three shelves down or so we get into Fate and then the bottom two are like Shadowrun because of course my wife um, Michelle Lyons McFarland uh, worked for FASA and she okay. was she was a longtime Shadowrun contributor so we have lots of her Shadowrun books and then some from her time at which is at the coast and then there's another shelf that's across the room that I'm not gonna try to turn the, <laughs> the computer around and show you because my, my table's a mess but uh, that's kind of where a lot of my, my more indie RPGs are so there are okay. lots of like Third Eye games and uh, Wicked Fate and um, a lot of like kind of I don't want to say standalone, but the folks that have kind of done one book thus far. Okay. So a lot of the stuff I get from Kickstarter actually is on that. On that okay, sure. And I know uh, for those of you that watch the the video religiously, you see behind Glenn his collection of uh, some of his. Small. It, it's small, but I, I think compared that, to what it used to be. Well, yeah, that's true. Because um, you, yeah, you had a, a very sizable collection and. Then you had some movies that you wanted to make and uh, some short films, and uh, you you sold some of that to finance that, didn't you? 
Uh, not the RPG stuff. Most of that went to finance the divorce. <laughs> well, and there it is. All right. So, yeah. Man, I feel like I should call my ex and tell her again how much I like her. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. I, I think that anybody that's a huge... A huge passionate fan of RPGs and whatnot. I mean, I could. Unfortunately, the Nerdatorium studio here is not fully organized yet. I still have to put shelves into the whole board gaming section of this thing. But <clears throat> yeah, there are bookshelves of of RPGs. A lot of it is is White Wolf because that's really where I, I cut my teeth and I spent a, a lot of money I didn't really have in the 90s to buy White Wolf uh, material. Um, but uh, yeah, there's other other stuff in there as well, and and I'm such a huge comic book nerd. Of course, there's a huge collection of trade paperbacks as well. But I think anybody who's really passionate about games and gaming and whatnot, they they too have their own shelf of all the materials that they've collected too of of the games that they love or uh, are interested in playing. So, all right, well, um, back to this. Uh, it looks like this is a really kind of a cool setting, and uh, people should should really really check out Infected Zombie RPG. Uh, like like I said, it's uh, uh, and I was corrected. It's eighteen dollars U.S. cash to get on board at the survivor level, which gets you the PDF of the game. So it'll be on your computer, and you can. You can do the thing I did with the Onyx Path, uh, Hunters Hunted 2. I got the PDF, and then I took it to uh, a print place and had it printed and put in the uh, plastic ring binder thing um, so that I could have a physical copy because I don't know if it's an age thing. I think we had this discussion before. I need to, I need to hold a thing. Having a PDF is okay, but I need to... Quick reference, you can't flip through a PDF, really. No, but you also can't control F a book. So, fair enough. There is that. There is that too. In in this indexes and RPG books tend to be somewhat hit or miss. So yeah, that's that's the thing I always. Worry. I do like being able to take uh, two hundred RPG books to Gen Con with me. Yes. Yeah. No so. kidding. I mean, what do you want to play? You want to play Deadlands? Yeah, I have Deadlands. <laughs> I have all the Deadlands. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move on then, and we are now going to speak solely with Matthew McFarland and find out what it takes to take a game that has uh, been around for a while. I mean, it existed in two different by two different companies before, and after Mayfair tabled and and closed off chill which was which is really sad you took it upon yourself uh, you and your wife together correct yes that's right and the two of you went about the process of getting the licensing for the game because it still existed out there that somebody else possessed it and you took it upon yourselves to not only choose this particular game for the reasons that we're going to talk about here in, in just a minute but go through the process of not only licensing, but then retooling it and bringing it up to date because it hadn't been. When did when did Mayfair table it? Uh, Ninety seven. The mid. I was going to say May, 
Mayfair was still making books for Chill as late as I want to say '96 or so. And I don't, oh. don't quote me on that. Well, of course, I just said it, so I guess you do quote me. But, um, <laughs> but well, we'll uh, I want to we'll say I want to say Beast Within and um, Unknown Providence were two of the latest ones, later ones, and I think they were like '95, '96 thereabouts. Okay, so it hadn't been in circulation and printing out new materials since the late 90s yeah. and in 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 20 when did you get the idea to do this 2010 2012 no it was later than that um 2014 i guess wow okay yeah it it came together pretty quickly once we once we kind of got it done well i so chill was my first horror game Okay. Um, I like I said I started playing RPGs with uh, Marvel's um, TSR oh. games. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Phaser Rip game was my first RPG, um, and then so I ran that for a couple of years when like my last couple of years in high school, and then I went to college and I thought I kind of like to do something different, but I don't know like I don't want to play D and D because um, I wasn't really into fantasy. So I'm like, I don't know what else is out there. And I went to my, my friendly local gaming store, which at the time was Mind Games in Toledo, Ohio. Okay. And I found this uh, real sexy black book um, called Chill. And I picked it up and read it. And I, I, I liked horror well enough, but I wasn't really you know hugely into it. But Chill had this amazing filmography section, bibliography. Of, uh, of horror movies and horror literature. And so over the next few years, I, I really immersed myself in that genre. And I probably ran chill three times a week, four times a week for a couple of years. Oh, wow. Why my undergraduate GPA is not better than it is. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, so it really was, was not only one of my favorite games, but really a very formative game for me as as a game master, as a gamer, and as a writer, um, the game that I picked up after Chill that really stuck was Wraith the Oblivion. Oh, okay, sure. Summer of 1994. And so about then is when I kind of stopped playing Chill and I started running World of Darkness. Um, and that, I mean, absolutely influenced my aesthetic uh, as, a, as a writer and as a game master. And so now fast forward 20 years, and I just kind of idly remarked to Michelle, like, I, I wonder who has the rights to chill these days. There was supposed to be a third edition uh, a couple of years ago, but that fell through. Um, and I don't know, did they did they revert back to Mayfair? Did, you know, did somebody else pick them up? I don't know. And Michelle, being a wizard, spent uh, you know a little while on the internet and tracked down um, Martin Caron, Who's, uh, who had purchased the rights from Mayfair Games, and and he was a fan. Um, I don't I don't know that he had any specific plans when he when he got the rights. I think that he he wanted to do something with it, um, and maybe wasn't sure quite what. So we contacted him and said, "Hey, as it turns out, we have a publishing company and we publish role playing games. Do you want to do something with with Chill?" And we you know eventually worked out an agreement with him that we would make a third edition of chill which I mean really was a, a dream project for me okay. so yeah I, I could see there being just a huge appeal to taking a game that you loved so much and played for so long and to be able to reintroduce it to to a new a new crop of, of gamers yeah um, well, and also to give it back to people who who like me 
you know, sure. who have played and loved one of the earlier editions, um, you know, we had we had the books at Gen Con, and we were, you know, handing them out to the Kickstarter backers, and I had several of the backers kind of come and find me, and you know, say, you know, I, I haven't played this game in you know 15 years, 20 years, but you know, thank you for bringing this back and for doing something new with it. So that was a very kind of heartwarming sort of feeling. You know, one of the things that I, I really enjoy about Chill, and, and I mentioned Hunters Hunted from White Wolf, but we'll focus on Chill here, but that whole concept of you're a human, and you may or may not have uh, special abilities that yeah. are beyond human, but not superhuman, or because there is a, a definite distinction in Chill, correct? Yes, yes, yes absolutely. Um, it, so characters in chill might have uh, what are called disciplines of the art, but they're not as impressive as the powers that the creatures of the unknown get to get to wield. I mean, you know, somebody who's very skilled at the art might be able to seal a room so creatures of the unknown can't get in. They might be able to heal other characters' injuries. They might even be able to kind of use some low-grade telekinesis. But a creature of the unknown can kill you by gesturing at you, you know, can sure. send you, you know, control your dreams, can, you know, shut your car off from a distance, that kind of thing. And one of the one of the kind of big truths about chill is um, the characters are human. They're just they're just people. They're people who ran across the unknown and were threatened by it or saw other people hurt by it. And rather than kind of ignoring that and going back to their lives and pretending not to, you know, not to know, they said, no, that's not good enough. People are getting hurt. I need to do something about it. Yeah. And so I like those kinds of people, you know, like, I, I, <laughs> those are people that I, you know, I, I, I emulate. I want to, you know, I want to have that kind of courage and probably I will never have to, you know, stand up to a vampire or anything. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that, there is an appeal to playing a character who is by nature heroic. And especially after as much work as I've done with the World of Darkness, where the characters are not intrinsically heroic, they're, you know, a lot of them are monsters, and even the ones that do good things, it's not a, it's not a given assumption, no matter what game you're playing, even if you're playing Hunter. Um, or yeah. Hunter's Hunted. You know, the, the motives of the characters are not necessarily pure. Um, and in Chill, you know, we, we talk a little bit about drive, um, you know, for each character. Like, what is it that, that pushes you to fight the unknown? And, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, well, I want to protect humanity, but that's a pretty good one. Sure. And, you know, one of the, the nice things about, like I said, I, I, I backed it and I got the PDF. And... Reading that glowing forward was was, was Ray, yeah yeah, um, which is really heartwarming and and um, really kind of delves at least on the surface a little bit of the history of of Chill uh, as as a game through its different incarnations, its different editions. Uh, but then when you get just beyond that, you get into uh, a short comic essentially that. Yeah shows you the journey or at least well, not the journey that it's shorter than that but it, it gives you an introduction to somebody who is a part of one of the save organizations yes and 
um, how he got involved and the particular art that he has, and then them hunting a monster, him hunting a monster with another group of, uh, of, of the local SAVE organization that he is now a part of. He's sort of a legacy. His father was in SAVE. And um, as I recall, he gets involved with SAVE because he wants to make his father proud and because he discovered uh, written documents and things about his father's time in SAVE and what the work yes. he had done to, to help protect people from monsters. And so he's kind of driven by, by that desire to do the same and, and make his dad proud. Um, but the story of, because there are flashbacks in this, and you get to see how his father shows him like his particular, his art, and that is to put up like a, basically like a force field, a protection screen around himself. And uh, him trying to work with his son with his particular gift. And uh, <clears throat> it it really kind of struck me for for a brief moment that he was kind of like a sport dad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, he used a baseball to throw it at his son to to try to get him to you know try to put up a you know to think fast and and, and protect himself. Um, but uh, it, it really kind of felt like for that brief moment, it's like, yeah, this is how your old man does it. Now it's your turn to <laughs> think fast, and he just whew, there goes the baseball and it hits him, hits him in the face. Yeah. Um, but then you get to see from that point him working because teamwork has got to be essential if you are just a human. And even though you might have, and you said before, that the particular arts that your characters might have are low level. Yeah. So teamwork is critical to survival. I've been running. Um, I've been running chill at cons. Uh, you know through. Origins and Gen Con and so forth this year, and then you know I've run it, of course, uh, at my own table. And one of the things that we really wanted to stress when we started putting together this edition was a a lone save envoy is probably going to die. Um, okay. A group of save envoys can win, but you have to know what you're doing when you go into the situation. You can't, you know, just go in guns blazing because a lot of the times the things you're fighting aren't really going to care about guns. Um, so. You, <laughs> your research you need to you know figure out how to fight and then you have to be able to fight and so when we um when we kind of redesigned the system um we kept the the core of it it's a percentile system you know you want to roll low yep. but um chill second edition had a lot of skills and they really focused more on like you need a separate skill for rifle shotgun pistol um, and sure. so forth. It was very granular. And then you had skills like the the chill companion introduced. Like here's a skill for semaphore, and here's a skill for farming, and here's. A, and I'm like, I don't really think that we need these. Um, and so, what we did for third edition was there are nine skills in the game. That's it. Um, and all of the skills in the game focus on investigating the unknown or fighting the unknown. There are skills that you'll use to do one of those two things. Um, and then if you have other things that your characters, your character knows how to do, there is an edge that you can take called background. So if I want to play a character who's like a master chef, okay, I don't need to burn my points on taking cooking as a skill. I will take background master chef. And then if at any point during the game, the fact that I'm a master chef applies, you know, if I want to, you know, uh, if perhaps cooking a, a particular meal is the key to defeating a creature of the unknown, I don't know, could happen, stranger things. Um, 
you never know. Then I get, then I get a bonus, you know, to any role that you know that that might involve. Um, but that that to me was a good way to uh, sort of stress, like this is what this game is about. This is what we expect you to be doing when you're playing chill, um, and we want the mechanics to to back that up. Yeah, and it really, you know, based on on your description and your thought process, it kind of reminds me a little bit of fate and taking it away from rolling dice and getting it back to the narrative portion and keeping kind of the game flowing because um, it's one of those things where okay now you gotta roll and now you gotta yeah. roll and now let's roll for this it really can break the flow sure um, one thing that I, I tell people um, about running games in general is never ask for a roll that you're not prepared for the player to fail never ask for a role that you're not prepared for the player to succeed. Um, and it doesn't matter what, how likely it is that the role will succeed or fail, because we've all seen that one player who, you know, they're, they're playing a World of Darkness game and they've got 18 dice, and oh, look at that, they rolled all twos. Or, yep. or the other side of it, you know, well, I've only got two dice, and oh, look at that, I rolled tens, and I can keep re-rolling them forever. Yeah. Um, so... You know, I, I've seen both of those eventualities often enough to know that I only want to ask for, I only want to bring chance into it when I'm prepared for the results. Um, and I think that, I mean, not just in chill, but in any RPG, if you're, if you're designing the mechanics around what should be rolled, if that makes any sense. Sure, yeah. Like, if these are the things that I want to leave to chance. Um, now, in chill, if you're making what are called investigator information checks, that is something that will give you clues as to what's going on, kind of that part of the case. Um, even if you fail, you still get clues. Okay, this, yeah. This is kind of the same philosophy that Gumshoe uses. Um, an investigative yeah, I was just going to say. An investigative game doesn't progress unless the characters get information. Now, if you roll better, you get more information. If you roll really crappily, you might get false information. But you will always get what are called the vital clues for that that scene. Sure. And that you know that piece of uh, of the case. Yeah, and again, that's you know keeping the game moving forward, but also. I, I've played in a game where, if you didn't hit the roll. You didn't get the information. Yeah. And yeah. you rolled and you rolled and you rolled. And if you didn't have the right skill or you didn't have the right, you know, if you weren't lucky enough, oh, dude, that portion just dragged on. And it felt <laughs> yeah. so, you know, defeating. It didn't feel yes. like you were, the yes. role didn't feel like it was really. Was well, and especially, yeah, and especially if you're just allowed to keep rolling. And at that point, I'm like, inevitable discovery. What, what yeah. the hell am I having you roll these dice for? You're going to figure it out because there's no reason that you have to stop. Yeah. So, you know, why, why invoke the dice at all? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a, a gaming philosophy called fail forward, um, which is basically that even a failed roll should push the game forward somehow. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's, I think that that's a, a good thing to go by, um, you know, just as a game master or as a game designer, you know. A, a failed role, I think that at least you need to sort of think twice before establishing that a, fail, a failed role does nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. nothing doesn't really, as, as Shakespeare says, nothing, no, nothing will come from nothing. <laughs> well, it's an absolute truth. Absolutely. Well, that's, it's actually, it plays along the life discussion I had many years ago with some friends of mine 
um, in the whole, the constantly rolling and rolling and rolling. And then the DM or game master at the time uh, said, uh, "Well, you guys can just puzzle through it, you know." And he says, "You know, you know, the die roll is just there for when you can't figure things out." I'm like, yeah, yeah. "But I'm not my character, though. Right. I'm not like an example of chill. I'm not actually a member of Save." Yes. I don't actually know all this occult lore stuff, and I don't actually know how to fire a machine gun. Mm -hmm. So there are things that my player knows that I, as a character, don't really know, or right. as a player, I don't know, you know, these things. I can't actually cast a magic pistol. So, <laughs> and, and oh, try was, harder, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I it, when I run games, I try to minimize die rolling as much as possible. If there's things that the players, if it's something that is so basically simple, that unless the character is completely, you know, tied up in a sack at the bottom of a river, they can accomplish it. I'm not going to roll a die, you know, like, right. yeah. roll a die to cast a light spell. No, right. you know what? That's You're not in combat. You're standing in a room by yourself. Cast a light spell. I don't care. Go ahead. Yeah. There are, there are a few games that um, Unknown Armies works like this, actually, that, I mean, your, your totals that you're rolling against are kind of low, but that's because they're meant to be used uh, in stressful situations. So I don't necessarily have a 30% chance of, you know, doing X or Y um, at all times. It's just that when it matters and I'm rolling, you sure. know, that's that's what I'm likely to do. Okay. Um, so, yeah. That's... Well, I have to say, I do hold a... There's always a bit of sourness with chill for me. <laughs> Oh. It's it's not. I love the game. I used to play it all the time in college. The sourness comes from the fact that, and I'll see if either of you can pick up on it, is the fact that if we had taken our ideas and gone further with them, because our campaign we had we had two regular players, and we played brothers who traveled around the U.S. <laughs> you were ahead of your time. Is that what you? And then, so and then Supernatural came out, and I was like, yeah. two episodes in, I'm like, damn it. My chill game, this is the chill game I played in. The only thing that's missing is we had we had my friend's girlfriend that played occasionally. Yeah. And she was uh, she would just tag along every now and then as as a third member of our family, who was never always with us. But I'm just like, man. We were Supernatural before it was cool. We were Supernatural before Supernatural was cool. That's funny. <laughs> Although we didn't cause an apocalypse every five episodes. Well, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can only cry wolf so many times. Um, you know, my biggest question to you, Matthew, is when you have the opportunity to, to, to bring something back to life that you have a great deal of admiration for, a great deal of, of good memories... Uh, there had to be probably some some pressure to to make sure that you you did it right. And you when you looked over the the project as a whole and you went, yeah, okay, I hit it. Um, this this feels right, and I think that other people are going to appreciate it. What are some of those things that when you looked at it and you either updated or streamlined that you're particularly proud of in Chill? So we talked about the skills. Um... That's 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 definitely one thing. Um, you know, it was funny when when we started working on uh, on the new edition, um, and I say we, and um, one of my one of my biggest uh, helps on the book was my brother Jonathan, who you know back in the day was one of my chill players, sure. and so he you know he was also very familiar with the game, and so we sat down and the first thing that we did, of course, was we reread second edition, and I. 
I thought to myself, wow, there are so many subsystems that I never used. Um, it, it was very, it was a very 90s game design. You know, there was, there was kind of like, here's the NPC reaction chart table thing. Like that kind of, that kind of thing. That there were a lot of, a lot of um, kind of little subsystems to roll on that it, it didn't really need, yeah. but were very kind of stylish, if you will, at the time. And so game design has, has changed a bit. And I wanted to, I wanted to make chill kind of more in line with what game design is doing now. Um, and I wanted to kind of put, you know, put my stamp on it and, but keep it feeling like the game that I knew and loved. Now that's not entirely an easy feat. Um, cause I'm like, okay, I want this to feel like a nineties game, but to not actually have all the baggage of a nineties sure. game. And I think we actually did that. Um, cause you know, as I'm running the game, it feels like chill to me, but at the same time, you know, I'm not looking at a chart to figure out how you know successes work. So, um, so we we streamlined kind of the math of the game. It used to be that you know you you you'd roll and you wanted to get under your target number, but how much under your target number you got determined what kind of success you got. And my brother could do it in his head. I never could. This is math, and math is kind of my my nemesis. Yeah. So we wanted to, one of my design goals was I want to have multiple success levels, but I want to be able to figure it out without a chart. Um, so the most math you ever have to do is divide a number in half. That's, even I can do yeah. that. Um, <laughs> and then, but the other, the thing that we added to the game that I think is the most interesting that I'm most proud of is the tokens, the token system. Um, so, so basically, the way that it works is you start off the game and there are a number of tokens on the board that are either uh, light or dark. And I'm going to hold one up to you here so you can see this. Um, so... Woo! Dice everywhere. <laughs> so, that's light. That's the Indalo. That's the light side. And then that's the dark side. Oh, nice. <laughs> right? And it's funny, actually, when we got these poker chips in, uh, my son, my son's seven years old, he picks one of them up. He says, Daddy, I like the symbol, but I don't like the crazy gorilla. <laughs> so, so these things are now called crazy gorillas. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> my table, anyway. So, um, but anyway, so there are there are light and dark tokens on the board, and then um, uh, during the course of the game, they they turn. Um, you start off with more light than dark, but um, you know the players will use the, the flip the light tokens to dark to add to their rolls or to activate disciplines of the art or to get extra clues and an information check and then this the chill master can flip the dark chips to light to activate uh, creatures of the unknowns their disciplines or to add to antagonist uh, NPCs roles or just to make life difficult for the players one of my favorite things to do with dark chips is you know the, the characters will be real sneaky and try to you know creep through the haunted house and then I'll turn a token and say you know your cell phone I so, saw that the, yeah that's so. a great uh, it's in genre <laughs> <laughs> you know, and if the player tells me ahead of time, like I'm going to make sure that my cell phone's turned off, well, okay, then I'm not going to do that because I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be a dick. So, but the tokens, what we have found in play, I'm sorry, what we found in play is that the tokens um, kind of represent this this flow of the of the stories uh, because 
at the beginning, the advantage is kind of with the characters. They're doing their investigation. They're getting all this, these clues and kind of putting things together. And by the time they find the creatures, now I've got this whole slate of dark chips that I can use against them. And then as I'm using them against them, they get more light chips, which then they could use to fight. So this is kind of cool, like back and forth that goes on. Yeah, I, I saw that as a mechanic and I went, what are you know, I was looking at especially at the beginning where it's like okay you need a pair of d10s and you need either uh, playing cards to to signify the tokens or uh, you, you recommend a poker chip where you just take one uh, like a sharpie and darken the the other side of the poker chip and use that to flip it back and forth and when I saw how that they're used I'm like oh god that's brilliant because it's a level of because it's something that the entire team draws from. Yes. So you really have to, as a team, go, okay, we kind of need this role, but you know, <laughs> maybe we can limp along without it. And it's a team decision because when, when literally when the chips are down, you guys <laughs> need to be able to, you know, when things are going really bad, you need to have these light side tokens to, to be able to, to do what you need to do to, to live yep. uh, if things go really bad. So... Uh, yeah, that that level of back and forth is is truly inspired and, and brilliant. Congratulations on that. That's that's beautiful. Absolutely. It's a it's a little reminiscent. Of, I think it was in Torg, where you had uh, something where players had these. I forget what ones they were. They were like these advantage cards, and you could use them to give yourself a boost. But as soon as you use them, that unlocked the game master to use bad ones against you. Oh, okay. So, and I hadn't seen anything even close to that in a long time. And yeah, that actually worked kind of nifty to to help the story along. Type of, I really need the boost, and yeah. you do it, and then you know, an hour later, you're trying to do something simple, and all of a sudden, something bad happens. <laughs> I knew it was coming because you just and you live under that shadow of it. It's like yeah. he's going to hit me with something soon. Well, the other thing that you do with the tokens too is that when whenever in the story the unknown kind of becomes aware of the of the envoys and knows that it's there and is ready for you, the Chillmaster adds a light token. Okay. And, and so I always make sure to, you know, when I'm running games at cons or whatever, I always make sure to explain that to the players so that during the game when I, you know, take a light token and add it to the, to the like, oh, shit. Yep. <laughs> Here we go. Yep. yep. So... <laughs> Which uh, you know can add to the the sense of the sense of drama and add to that level of horror and anxiety in the game, which I think is also a, a great side bonus to that mechanic. Yes. Well, uh, trying to make a role-playing game, trying to have a horror role-playing game actually inspire tension is hard to do. Yeah. Because unless you're really invested in your character or unless you're really immersed in the game, which is as much a function of the player as anything else. Because some people just don't get into it, uh, or don't get into it to the degree that they're going to feel tense. Um, it's it's hard to to conjure that. Now, one way you can do that is by doing atmospheric things. You know, you play music, you screw with the lighting, that kind of thing. But it's hard to do. It's hard to arrange that sometimes. And the token mechanic. So now there's a a real tangible, visible representation of kind of where we are in the story and what the characters have to draw on or what I have to draw on um, and running running the game. And um, so that was that was definitely you know something deliberate. like how do we how do we because you can't scare players really, but what you can do is up the tension. Yeah. 
No, that's absolutely wonderful. Huh. Um, why I only play horror role-playing games on Halloween only, in a graveyard <laughs> on top of the grave of someone who committed suicide. It's the only way, only way to actually play it properly. <laughs> so the, the other horror game, of course, that really, like, ups the tension to ridiculous levels just by nature of the game is Dread. Yes. Dread. Yeah. Yes. So it's the game that uses a Jenga tower as the task resolution. Oh boy! And if you if you knock the tower over, your character is out, dead, catatonic, arrested, out of the game. But <laughs> but here's the thing: you never have to pull. If you don't pull, you fail at whatever you were doing, but you're not, and you could potentially be injured, but you're not out. And so I have you can always, I always joke that you can tell at at Gen Con or at Origins who's playing Dread because there's a Jenga tower on the edge of a table. And everybody's ten feet away from the table, and if you walk within ten feet of the table, they fucking tackle you. <laughs> do not do it. Get away. So, but everybody's up and pacing because they, you know, they're too keyed up to sit down. It's really awesome. So. Actually, I got to play it for the first time this year at Gen Con. And that was yeah. That definitely has yeah, such an awesome game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of that too is 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 the storyteller. I know that. Um, you know, uh, was it uh, Pat Rothfuss actually ran a game for for some folks, and it was uh, the trauma system. Yeah. And he he was pressured into running a game, and uh, the, and he's like, okay, we're doing this in trauma, and he starts to tell the story of like you know this white van that's seen going around from area to area, and he 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 felt put up, put upon to do this thing to to create this story and he just like focused all that passion and that kind of frustration and and made something that actually kind of scared everybody that played that game for years to come so whenever they saw a white van they'd be like oh you know it was just like a conditioned response um and that's you know to this day uh you know that they still talk about it and that's, you know, again, that's, it's it's not so much having the setting and the book and everything. It has to be something that's inside of you that you want to convey that feeling and you have to do, you have to do the work to, to, to draw the players in and to be invested and to, you know, and the tokens, I think, really help physically manifest and, and kind of reinforce the fact that there are stakes to what you're doing. And um, it's just such a brilliant mechanic. I absolutely, absolutely love it. All right. Well, um, um, yeah, I think that those are all the, the, the questions that we really had about, about Chill. Um, we're going to wrap things up here, and then we're going to uh, find out more information on where people can find out more about Growling Door Games and Chill and, and some of the other projects that, that you do, Matthew. Yes, um, <clears throat> Hello, my name is. That's uh, the opportunity that you have to tell us about your character that you are currently or have played in the past. You know, whether that's a, a horror genre character that you played or fantasy or sci-fi, whatever. Uh, you can go to galacticnetcasts.com and you can click to the Adventure Party page and find the uh, Hello, my name is icon. You can click that and fill out a short form and tell us about uh, yourself and your character. Yes, we do ask for your email address. The only reason why we ask for it is so that we can send you a certificate uh, as a thank you 
uh, for participating and let us know about you and the character that you played in the past and give us the opportunity to talk about why you think that character was so cool to play. Um, also, uh, you can find the Adventure Party, like I said before, galacticnetcasts.com, and you can find all of our social media outlets. You can find us on uh, YouTube, and we're on iTunes and Stitcher for the audio portions uh, of the show. We try to have this available not just in video uh, format, but for you to be able to, to listen to on your desktop or your, your iPod or whatever type of device that you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, if you do use iTunes and Stitcher, we ask that you take a moment to give us a review and let us know what you think. Uh, your review, positive or negative, uh, can help shape the, the adventure party into being a, a better show uh, and let us know maybe what we need to focus on more, maybe what we need to focus on a little bit less. Um, we'd really appreciate that feedback. You can also contact us by emailing galacticnetcasts at gmail.com or you can call or text the number 805-328-3966 and leave a message, and like I said, whether that's a voice or text message, that's up to you. Uh, if you do text, depending on your particular calling plan, there might be a charge involved. One other thing that we've added is a uh, we use WordPress for the galacticnetcasts.com page and we have a plugin that allows you to if you have a microphone attached to your computer you click the icon on the now the left hand side we've, we've moved the button it's on the left hand side of the screen and if you click that it will allow you to directly record a message that is emailed to us and uh, give us feedback that way if that's uh, if that's a little bit better for you um, Thanks again, Matthew, for talking to us about chill and you know what it what it took to 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 bring a classic horror game that gave so much to so many and bring it back to to everybody to be able to experience again in a more streamlined format than it was before. Uh, where can people find out more about uh, you and Growling Door Games? Uh, they can go to growlingdoorgames.com, actually. And there are, that's that simple, um, there are uh, pages and links for our, our other games for Curse of Darkness, which is our post-apocalyptic role-playing game about death and memory and identity and hard choices, and A Tragedy in Five Acts, which is our one evening uh, Shakespearean tragedy emulator, um, and chill. Excellent. And um, there's also links to the store to uh, acquire those games, too, correct? Yes, that's correct. There's a there's a buy link uh, on the site that'll take you to our drive through RPG page. At the moment, Chill is only available for purchase in PDF. We're going to have buttons on the site that will let people order um, the hardcover and uh, the box set, which includes a, a lovely little bag like this that includes ten chips and uh, two dice. Um, but I'm still trying to figure out how to set up the PayPal buttons and get make shipping work. So oh, that's sure. I also need to make sure that all of the Kickstarter backers uh, have their products shipped out to them, and we we kind of ran into a hiccup with that with uh, some of the international shipping last week. So I need to get that squared away. Yeah, it's it'll be fine. It's just we we basically there was a computer crash that kind of slowed things down. So gotcha. But it's it's handled and it's underway. Excellent. And see, once that's available on Drive Through RPG. I will be getting the box set because I want those tokens. <laughs> so I mean, the, the, the box set, the hardcover, will be available off our website. Okay. Um, the um, it will eventually be available print on demand on uh, Drive Through RPG, 
Okay. Um, but again, you know, I need to, there's a couple other things I need to get set up first, but yep. that's, that's coming. So if you keep an eye on growlingdoorgames.com or follow us on Twitter at, at growlingdoor, um, then we will definitely make the announcements when those things are, are ready to go. Okay, wonderful. And uh, Glenn, uh, thanks again for uh, joining us uh, on this uh, wonderful adventure that we call a podcast. Uh, where can people find out more about uh, you and uh, what you do? You can find me on Facebook with uh, Naked Open Productions or the Beanie Bunker or Mr. Only RPG or Apocalypse How the Card Game or on YouTube, Beanie Bunker, Naked Open Productions, or the easiest way is to follow me on Twitter at Naked Hobo. And just so everybody's aware, it's Naked Hobo Productions. I so just... when you see the Naked Hobo Productions followed at Growling Door Games, you won't think it's some porn site. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It's that nice little heads up, and and Glenn uh, has done uh, uh, three different short horror movie short films, which uh, are uh, what there's Hell, Handy, and what's the third one? Prey. Prey. That's right. So, uh, you can find those on you can find those on the uh, on Naked my YouTube Productions channel. YouTube Naked channel. Naked Productions. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us at the Adventure Party. May your characters never die and your adventures always be epic. Thank you and good night. You have been listening to a presentation of GalacticNetcasts.com. For more about the show you just listened to, including how to subscribe, give us feedback, links to our social feeds, and more, please visit www.galacticnetcasts.com.